Welcome back to the backdrop, untold stories in golf. Professor, good morning to you, sir. I'm excited today to, to get to our guests quickly because they've got something special in the Atlanta scene. And I, I think people are familiar that I don't always speak the most highly of the Atlanta golf scene in terms of like quantity of really top level golf courses, right? I think that's somewhat factual statement that you can say, oh, there's a ton of heavy, heavy hitters. Um, but I would argue Rivermont itself across any city would be blessed to have a place like Rivermont within within its confines. Um, so, yeah, I, I woke up excited to talk about Atlanta golf today. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, we, we were going to talk about Rivermont because we got Chris Cupid, uh, the on, on LinkedIn, his title is janitor at Rivermont Golf Club. So I wanted to ask him about that, but I believe he is the, the owner of the facility as well. And it's just a, a fantastic club. I've met so many of their members that um, really kind of value the things that I think you and I do here on the Backdrop, Kevin, as well as new club members uh, broadly in our golf society. So yeah, it's going to be fun. And um, the man has some knowledge in the game too. He, he served as Georgia State Golf Association president. He uh, is the son of, of golf professionals and uh, competed in a number of USGA events as well. So I, I got, we, there's so many directions we can take it. He's been in, he's almost got the, or he's all the kind of got the, the amateur trifecta, maybe the junior am. I think he played in. Is that right? Junior am, mid am. I have it on record. And, yep. And state am, or not state, but national am as well. So the two amateur championships, yes, and I believe two U.S. mid amateur championships, if our researcher is correct. But actually, the fun part, and this is right in our wheelhouse of this show and all the guests that we've had. I feel like we've had more Scottish and British guests than U.S. this year, but uh, three British amateurs. Ooh, so we're gonna have to. We'll see. We'll yeah. have to peg them on which courses. Um, yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, let's get to it. You got any educational material before we do that? Yeah. I, I watched uh, Oppenheimer. Um, Reese, have you seen it yet? I, I have not. My oh, movie, uh, I, I've I not got, seen a movie I, got, in I know you got kids. I, I I shouldn't be surprised. Barbie, did you go see Barbie by chance? Not yet, no. Ah, go, both excellent movies, but Oppenheimer was, I'm a Cillian Murphy fanboy, so... Uh, it could have been a terrible movie, and I was going to love it. Um, but it actually made me think of, uh, you know, it's all about the atom bomb. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it made me think of just nuclear energy and nuclear power. And one of the things I learned randomly also on a podcast uh, recently was, you know, Richard Nixon. Um, not a lot of great things to say about Richard Nixon and everything, right? But one of the things that he he was going to do before, uh, before Watergate happened and, and all that fallout was pursuing putting the U.S. on nuclear power, essentially a 1,000 nuclear power plants across the, the nation. Um, there's a huge story behind it. This got complicated by also a commissions group he put in place that then like really tried to stop that. It, ignoring all that, what's fascinating about it would have been, it would have made us a fully independent energy company um, within, I think, a decade. And that's truly fully independent, so not relying on energy from any other country or any other source, but purely nuclear. And also a zero emissions country um, hmm. within like the 1970s, this, w- this would have occurred, which would have been a phenomenal feat. If you think of the long-term effects of this not becoming a thing, you know, everything in terms of all, all the Middle Eastern wars we've been involved with, which have all stemmed from, you know, oil and uh, control, uh, as well as our reliant on other energy resources and pursuing, you know, green energy and all these sorts of things would have been null and void had, had this occurred. And now there's a huge history, um, cultural history of why there's a verse reaction to nuclear power. And, you know, we could have a whole, I mean, there's podcasts on it and books on it. 
Um, but the fact there is just if we had committed to it, we would have been ener- we would have been energy independent um, within a decade and a zero emissions country. So something I hadn't realized until I read and heard about that, which is just fascinating to think about and how public perception has in other political impact influences have kept that from ever becoming a potential reality. If, if public opinion would just said, you know, Watergate, so what? He's listening to some phone calls. Let, let's sweep it under the rug. <laughs> let's get ourselves on the nuclear grid. Hey, I'm not going there with that. Um, <laughs> you know, play stupid no, that, games, that is, win stupid prizes sort of thing. But yeah. The arc of history, right? It's interesting to think about. What if that doesn't happen? If that is true, that, they, that you know, we're on nuclear power. I know you're a big fan of, of Gates' research on that. You've talked about in the past. Um yeah, it's fascinating. But hey, we wouldn't have lived golf if, if that happened, right? Probably. <laughs> that's that's right. Sorry. We would not. Yeah, for all the people in the media golf world, then this was a good thing because it's generated for the last, you know, how many clicks have they gotten in the last year just based on Liv being, being in the golf scene? We, we made it so long without a Liv Golf reference, <laughs> I feel like. It, I ruined it. I thought we were going to make it a whole season almost. But, uh, well, you know what else is nuclear? I got to, this is my transition here. Uh, my new True Temper hazardous black shaft Ooh. that I, I loaded into my driving iron. You will um, not shut up about this driving iron. I know it's, but the shaft is what I. So I can't wait to see what the hazardous. I'm hoping the hazardous black is is going to be what I end up with in my driver. We'll see what happens. But uh, big thank you to True Temper for being a supporter of our podcast, to being a tremendous supporter of New Club Golf Society. Um, those guys are great. It, they really are a company that's been at the heart of the game for so long. And, uh, and just wanted to get a thank you to, to them, um, for the support today. Uh, professor, we got a lot to talk to Mr. Chris Cupid about. Should we get to the show? Let's go. Chris, welcome to the backdrop. Good morning. I, I don't know if I can follow the Nixon references. <laughs> You know, That's pretty good. I mean, who would have thought a Republican with the EPA, wage price controls, OSHA, you know, he'd have been drummed out today. <laughs> and some of those commissions, you know, he put in place. It was actually on the nuclear side. It was a, he was pro-nuclear power, but also put commissions in place that were counteracting that initiative. Um, kind of a fascinating, fascinating play on both sides. Um, yes, yes, a very complex and conflicted man. Kevin always tries to take us uh, with those little intros somewhere else other than the game of golf. But Chris, I- I'm going to put a square in that that set if you, <laughs> okay. if you don't mind. Fair enough. Uh, because you've lived a, a really fascinating golf life. And um, uh, I'm going to start with, with Rivermont. Um, and we'll get to, to some many other things that you've done in the game of golf. But R- Rivermont to me is, is a very interesting uh, special place in particularly the Atlanta golf scene. I think the professor mentioned that at the top of the show. There's just not many places like it. Um, you guys just hosted the Georgia State Amateur. Uh, you're going to be hosting a new club and our charity classic for Youth on Course along with the GSGA uh, September 19th. So anybody listening, go go check it out. We're, we're going to be at Reverend If you haven't played, I'm telling you, you have to go experience this place. It is, it is phenomenal golf and they do some very interesting things on the agronomy side. But um, tell, tell me about your vision for this place. And and I know it's been many years now dating back to the 70s. Uh, how has that vision evolved? 
why did did you specifically say I'm going to make this place very different than than other private club experiences or um and did you ever get pushback on that? How did you stay kind of true to that vision and how did that vision evolve? Yeah, so the club was started uh, by my mother and father in 1973. Uh, he was a golf pro. He had four other brothers that were golf pros and very active in the game. They came from Texas. Um, so from 1973 to, you know, till now, it's been a family business and it's the only club we own. We don't own you know, I jokingly refer to Club Corp and some of the others as the evil empire. We're, you know, we're the rebellion. We're the, we're the little guy. And, you know, we have to compete. If it doesn't work, you know, we're out in the streets because this is our only business. Um, so by in 1987, it was my freshman year. I was at, uh, playing golf and my father injured himself in a deer hunting accident. In the last 17 years, he was a quadriplegic. So after graduating college, uh, in Virginia in 1991, I came to work in the family business and, you know, he was still alive. He, he passed in 03, but it was very much mother, dad, myself, my sister works for us now. And so it was very much a family business. Uh, we've always had a, it was a good Joe Lee golf course. Joe Lee did a lot of nice designs. You know, Jack Nicholas famously gave him the backhanded compliment that Joe Lee's never built a bad golf course. He's never built a great golf course, but he never built a bad one. So we've hosted events and had a nice course that was just showing its age by about 2005. Um, so in 2005, my father had passed. Our longtime general manager moved on down to Gainesville, Florida to take a different job. And it was it was a pretty scary time. Um, I've been involved in golf for a long time, but we needed to. Our irrigation was a mess. The greens were struggling. We had to make a change, and I felt, and the the get the where I pushed my mother was, you know, if we had just done the typical redo, fresh white sand, kind of freshen up Joe Lee, redo the greens, do the irrigation, you're going to get a pop the first year because it's new and, and nice, and then we're going to look like every other golf course in Atlanta, and not to disparage my where I grew up, but like you. Um, I love, you know, I love it. I love golf. I love Atlanta, but there's very little in Atlanta, despite our great topography, you would think we would have great golf. And, you know, I, I've been around, I've been so lucky. I played around places. You know, if you go in the Northeast, you go up to Ohio, you heck, you go to Chattanooga. Chattanooga has got great golf and Atlanta has, I think a lot of very good golf courses that do everything. Perfect. Uh, the edging's done perfectly. They have beautiful crepe myrtles and hosta at every tee. And I could care less about that. I think that's, you know, I'm, I didn't want to be a nursery. And I didn't want to look like everybody else. So when I was looking for architects, we talked to uh, we talked to a number of folks. But Mike Riley, I had met at Wingfoot uh, years before. I had had a partner that I rode him like a dog, and we won the Wingfoot Anderson Memorial. Mike Riley and his partner won it the next year. And so we would meet up at dinners and we would talk about golf and golf courses and what was overrated and what, you know, how, how dumb golfers were because they thought this was great when it's really not. And, you know, I reached back out to him and said, Hey, we got to redo the course. And if everybody's going up, we're going to go down. If people go left, we're going right. Let's create something that's 
different. We're going to alienate some folks, but I want, you know, firm, fast greens. I want quirk. I want to, you know, I want people to be scratching their heads. And at the time, we also had hired uh, Mark Hoban, my superintendent, who really brought, you know, he took over as a head superintendent at age 21 at the Standard Club. So his career, he's in the Hall of Fame for superintendents, took over for the legendary Palmer Maples. At 21, his first summer at the old Standard Club in Brookhaven, they were the first golf course in Atlanta to have bent grass greens. And that was his first job. So anyway, he was ahead of the game, introduced native grasses really at the new Standard Club. And I, you know, I'd seen that look up in the Northeast predominantly, and I wanted to, wanted to have that um, for a lot of reasons. But, you know, we went with brown sand, pretty severe undulations, native areas. Um, we ended up with baskets, which is a whole other story. But we wanted an old throwback course where the ground game mattered. Uh, there were options and it would allow the beginner to roll it up, play safe, putt from way off the green or, you know, really frustrate the better player who maybe was going for a whole location and missed it and now had an up and down that he had no chance. We're five minutes in and I want to just stop the pot and come play golf with you so we can just <laughs> riff and rant um, for four hours rather than, you know, the 40 minutes we have here. But yeah, so... I found your GCA post on Rivermont, and I'm going to kiss some highlights, but I'm going to ask you about some of the highlights are absolutely no white sand, which you just mentioned. Nothing looks uglier, more out of place. Um, create the most interesting greens. I don't give a damn about the stint meter. I'd rather play undulating greens that were slow instead of tiered that have to be mowed at low heights to get their speed. Trees suck. I appreciated that one. Um, bunkers should be hazards. Mean, nasty, and brutish. Um, no ornamental trees or annual um, plantings. I think that echoes your, you know, we're not a nursery type of place. And on and on, you yeah, I think 16 different points. Uh, my question is where they're incredibly thoughtful, they're incredibly detailed, and they span a wide range. Where did that come from? You know, what was it in your golf experience that led you to that point and say, okay, here's what golf is to me? You know, what were your, I'm sure you have some informing courses, informing experiences, but there's obviously a rich history that goes into creating such a detailed and expansive list. I've been very, very fortunate. I've been able to play a lot of golf. Before my dad got hurt in the mid 80s, I was able to go over with him and play at St. Andrews. And, at, you know, most people, and I, and I love to read, I mean, I've, I'd read about Bob Jones going over there and hating it at first, tearing up his scorecard on the 11th hole, quitting, um, and then coming back and it being basically the love of his life. Um, and for whatever reason, I just liked it. Uh, probably, I, I never was a very good driver of the golf ball, so I hated my driver. And I could go over there and hit a two iron and scream it down the fairway and play golf because I was pretty good at the other stuff. And so I love St. Andrews from the beginning. Got to play in college. We got to play, you know, a lot of pretty. When I grew up in college, they didn't host big events that they wanted to show off their course. We went and played courses they just aerated because the college kids were coming in and they didn't care. But we got to play some neat places. So um, as I got older, played some amateur golf, got to play at some neat courses in the Northeast. It was really um, playing those courses, Wingfoot, Maidstone, um, we got to play, we did it, we got to do a day, you know, I'd been to Marion and Pine Valley and the Muirfield Village in Ohio, Scioto, 
those type of courses, I'd never seen anything like that. Um, as a junior, we got to play Muirfield Village. The, it was the year Nicholas won the Masters, and he was their course was hosting. And I can remember looking out with my my dad at the time, and the uh, they were mowing their fairways with what we mowed our greens with. And I remember, wow, this is pretty special. It was the first time I'd seen a really great course in great shape. Um, but the course that changed it for me mostly was National Golf Links of America. We got to do a day where we got to play Shinnecock and National Golf Links, which is heaven for most golfers. And Shinnecock's phenomenal. But if I had to pick one golf course the rest of my life in America to play, it would be National Golf Links because so much depended on the wind and the ground. If it was windy, it could play very challenging. Otherwise, it was fun. They had width. You had choices. You could, you know, for the most part, if you can get in a golfer's head and give them choices, now it's all analytics and there's a way you play. But 40 years ago, you could really mess with the golfer pretty easily by giving them a, an option. And, you know, the, the biggest favor you can do a great player is tell them, hit it here. If you give them targets and no choice, they're so good, it's easy. But as soon as they can, you, you give them something other than an easy target, or not an easy target, but a target, uh, and you create a little bit of doubt, that's your only chance at kind of confounding them a little bit. So National Golf Links changed everything for me, and it became what I thought golf should be. And then, of course, I read uh, McDonald's book, Scotland's Gift Golf, um, you know, he had the line about the trees. So the first two things I gave Mark Hoban, I gave him a wood chipper and, and McDonald's book. And I had flagged the page and said, the ideal course has no trees. And I said, go to it. <laughs> oh, you're speaking to my heart right there. You're speaking to my heart. Uh, I, I, I'm going to transition to the, the Georgia state am at your guys place at Rivermont this past year. Um, you know, I just get your candid reflections on the week. I think I, I was, I'll tell you, I was surprised to see a score of six under par winning, you know, the, the elite amateur uh, event in the state. And uh, did you, did the course play as you were hoping? Uh, were you involved in the setup? And and what are just some of your, your thoughts after seeing these kids who hit <laughs> it so darn far nowadays? Um, how did you think everything went? No, we were uh, I'd, I'd worked with uh, Jeff Fages a lot, so we talked a lot about the setup. You know, we did, uh, we played the course at par 70 the first two days and 72 the last two days, which was a little different. Um, so the, we, the week before the amateur, it poured. It was a horrible, horrible, rainy week. And we were, I was so nervous because, um, you know, if it had rained that week, we got, we were so fortunate because the week of the actual event was dry. Um, and the course played played okay. Um, my dream would have been for us to have had a baked out droughty summer and the course to have, you know, I told, tell Mark, Hey, if it's August and our high spots in the fairways aren't browned out, we put too much water down. Um, so the, it was a little disappointing that it played soft. What happened though, it rained so much the week before we couldn't do one last mow of the rough on Monday. So the rough was, it was pretty rough. Um, the course, the fairways aren't narrow, but the course can play a little tight. Um, so the narrowness, I think, is what kind of kept the scores lower. I thought 12 under, 10 to 12 under would be the winning score. And so it played a little tougher. The greens we kept at 11 and a half. 
um, just because any faster, I mean, that was plenty fast for our undulations. But, um, you know, again, going back to our concept, I wanted a golf course that if a good player, and we had a lot of them, if you play well, you should be able to shoot 64, 5, 6. I have no problem. I mean, that's, that's a good golf course. But it's this, but I would love to see that player that goes out and shoots 65, come back the next day, be just a little off and hit it on the wrong side of the hole and shoot 74. But, you know, I think good courses should yield good scores to good players that play a good round. Um, but, you know, you don't want it to play. It shouldn't be easy. You shouldn't be able to get a course after one or two practice rounds. And I think that's one of the reasons the course played tough. The rough um, and the fact that it's not an easy course to figure out where to hit it, you know, with one or two plays. So, Chris, you have these aspirations for the course, you know, <clears throat> regardless of the tournament or everyday play. And I think firm conditions are one of yours, right? Like you use the word baked out or brown. Like that's what you would love to see mm-hmm. with it. Does that always always go over well with the membership or how does that handle get handled in terms of the membership there? Do you ever get pushback on that or do you guys sort of the just maybe natural selection, the members that come to you, that's what they're looking for. So they're like, yeah, let it brown out. Cause I can just imagine I'll just throw a pitch at Athens country club. I, I mean, I'm in the locker room and when it starts browning out and I'm patting our super on the back and James, you do, do an amazing job. I hear everybody in the locker room complaining that, you know, it's mid July and the course isn't green. You know, why, why are the fairways browning out? So right. behind the scenes, how's that work for you, you know, being the owner and having this aspiration, but yet always, you know, golfers are golfers and some are going to complain. Right. No, uh, so we definitely, we have a bit of a culture. We do attract a lot of good players. Um, I think when we did our anniversary book, we found out that other than 36 old facilities, we have more single digits or golfers under a four handicap than anyone else in the state. Wow. So we do get a lot of good players. Um, but we also, I mean, I'm very aware we, we have a, a nice senior group of members and that, you know, they would, they want a little more cushion under the ball. Um, I think we've done a pretty decent job of explaining, look, when it's browned out, you're getting a great amount of roll. Um, you know, my wife's a beginner. I understand senior golf. It is harder to hit down on the ball. While I personally would love to see dust flying when I'm hitting the ball and that kind of that powder explosion mm-hmm. when you hit an iron shot, um, there is a balance, but I would say we lean a little more toward the natural hay. Um, yes, it's a little tighter, but you've got 35 yards of roll, which is actually statistically better for you than anything else is getting closer to the hole. Yeah, I've seen that transition personally with my my father in terms of used to strive for those green conditions, but now he's like, well, I just swing a little lighter and scoop it a little bit more and the ball goes further, right? He's now driving it 20 yards farther than he used to because of embracing stuff like that. Well, and we have some creeks. Some There are some forced carries, but other than, um, I believe that other than our 16th hole, we intentionally left every green you can run it up. You do not, I mean, you could literally putt it from 50 yards. Um, so... You know, that was, again, that was something that was very intentional. It's such a, uh, uh, I, I, one thing I love in golf is, is a little bit of variance and, uh, you can get that, you know, on the links courses where doubles can, can find you, whether it be a pot bunker or a runoff or ping pong here and there to certain pins. Uh, I did notice when I was following the Georgia state am, um, 
and I'll give a quick shout out to one of our dear friends of this podcast, Will Hanna. He was a big reason. I'm a big Will Hanna supporter. Love the man. He's a member of New Club, member of many of the clubs in, in Atlanta, but uh, he missed the cut. So I got all his complaints about the course, if you'd like to hear him, Chris. But, <laughs> um, it was mostly because he went 74, 76. But I stuck with it for the weekend, and, and uh, I think Jake Peacock uh, of sure. Milton ends up winning at, at six under par, as I mentioned. But you know, his final round was a bit of a, a roller coaster. I think he went bogey, bogey, double bogey on fifth, sixth, and seventh, and and then he uh, rebounded on the back nine and could make a bunch of birdies coming in. And as someone who doesn't have that much experience with your golf course and getting ready for our charity classic on the nineteenth, what it what it gets me excited for is courses that allow for that. You know, someone who's obviously playing very, very well, uh, where there is a, a decision that's being made that can lead to a high score or a birdie on pro, uh, on on most every hole, as I remember from my visit um, a couple years ago. So, you know, is that uh, when when you look at tournament golf and what it's become with with technology, and you probably know where this is going, but as you see that, is is there things more courses need to be doing that are are you know, not, not, not that. I just feel there's a lot of sleepy courses out there now that, that don't have that variance, but Rivermont seemingly does. Well, we, we did reroute some holes, but we were mostly stuck with the Jolie routing. Um, I, I can tell you one of my pet peeves, particularly with renovations, everybody gets, hung, well, not everybody, but my opinion is that people get hung up sometimes trying to make every hole, uh, the hole, or like they, they want every hole to be, the championship hole and it's a round of golf it's 18 holes there needs to be a flow and i love the fact that our first eight holes are brutal they're very hard and nine through 14 are frankly very easy for when we're talking for the expert player so if you get through the first eight holes you know the worst thing a, a good player can do is start thinking ahead and it's the hardest thing not to do mm. but if a good player gets through our eighth hole and he knows he has five birdie holes. Every hole he goes where he doesn't make a birdie, he's putting more pressure on himself because our last four holes are tough. So I love the fact that we were fortunate to have that natural flow. Um, I tell you, Jake's round, when he gets through seven, he doubles seven. The eighth hole is probably our hardest hole. It's from where they were playing it, nearly 500 yard, par four, uphill, blind tee shot over a forced carry of bunkers and a hazard on the right. Um, easily the hardest hole. And he not only pars that, but then I think he goes on to make four or five more birdies and come back and win by one stroke. Um, so, but, you know, so that was phenomenal. That, that's, that was like a, a Hollywood script for how our course should play. And he played one hole at a time, as cliche as that is, and, and played a great round of golf and made a ton of birdies, which was exciting and terrific. But yeah, the, the notion that, okay, we're redoing it, you know, every hole's got to be hard or every hole's, that's to me so wrong. Um, again, it's, it's a round of golf. It's 18 holes and there needs to be a little up and down and flow. And that's what I think is so exciting about it. So you've watched uh, the week of, of all these very expert golfers, as you put it, uh, play the golf course. I know you're a rollback guy because when we chatted last year, I loved – we got off on the topic somehow, Chris, and I, I can't remember every one of your your takes. But wh what I – why I'm so interested in your rollback uh, opinion and is 
you, you've sat on governing boards and bodies, and you own a facility. You have to, you're, you're responsible for the, the changes to the golf course. So you're you're in an interesting seat. Um, what do you think? Not that you're pro rollback, because we I know that. But what, what do you think about the execution of it? What, what do you think our, our future is, and how should it progress? If you're in the ear of of some of the the folks that are in that seat for the prof- both the professional game and our governing bodies and these equipment manufacturers, what, what do you think is the the appropriate way to do a rollback? Gosh, well, I mean, I don't know if you know, I was on a, on the USGA committee for about fifteen years, and I was actually nominated to the executive committee to be on the rules and equipment standards until there's a little bit of a story, but basically until I got kicked off of that. Um, <laughs> there's a, a long Pat Perez, Shinnecock Hills story there. Um, but uh, I'll make time. If it sounds, that sounds like a good one. If we have time, I'll certainly get into it. But yeah, so I was, I was supposed to be one of the three people at the USGA on the rules of golf and equipment standards. And we had, so I've, you know, I've read the research at the time it was, uh, um, you know, they were they, <laughs> the, the problem that the ruling bodies have is nobody likes golf's referees or nobody likes sports referees. That's just the nature of things. And without getting too deep in the weeds, I think the USGA, you know, they want to be at the cool kids table. They want to be loved. They want to hang out with the players. And the role needs to be the rules making body for the game to be respected, not try to be loved. There was an old USGA president that said, hey, we need to treat these. Now, these guys are our customers. I can't think of a more misguided way to look at a, gov- a governing body's role than that. Um, so, I mean, the game's been around five or 600 years. It, it's always tickled me. I mean, I've, I've been in the rules side of things and I love the rules up, but you know, every two to four years, we keep tweaking it. And we keep tweaking it, frankly, in response to the professional game which is about one half of 1% of our great game. And we've let the tail wag the dog for far too long. Um, golf's got to be sustainable uh, to our, uh, I don't want to say disgrace, but it's it's sad to me that uh, golf has become for a long time, less affordable, less accessible. You know, we have had an ugly history where we weren't as welcoming as we should be to a lot of folks and shame on us. It should be a game where you can go grab some. It should be like soccer. It's not quite soccer, but it should be an easy game to pick up, grab some clubs, and go play. And we've created such a level of expectation in terms of what courses are supposed to be. You go in Atlanta, you want to play a really good course. You're gonna spend fifty grand to join, a thousand dollars a month, and then feel the need to get another thousand dollars on clubs that are going to be outdated in two years, and if you're a pro and you get free clubs and you never pay to play golf, it's no big deal. But there are real impacts down the line on courses like mine. And, you know, the other 99%, you know, when, when Joe Lee built our course, we had two sets of tees. The ladies, it was called the ladies tee, the red tee up front, and then a larger tee for the, uh, the other, you know, the regular and the championship. You know, now we've got five and six tees per hole. Um, by the way, I flip my tee. My my back tee is my red tee. Um, also, another you know homage to National Golf Links. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know there are real expenses, and it's it's wrong because the golf consumer is paying 
for the elite golfer to put on this show. And it's frankly, it's it's one of relative distance, not absolute distance that really matters. Gosh, I know the professor's not in a log because you just said it so well of what I know he he shares a lot of, but I, I got to ask, what do you say to the people who say, well, ignore it, ignore the professional game. You're hosting, you know, your members at your club and, and, and you're responsible for them. Why not just let them play with their, you know, tennis racket heads and their balls that go farther because it doesn't make that big of a difference for them. Um, just, just don't, host the elite events and don't have them what, as, as a, a facility operator. Why is that not sensible, if you will? Or, or because that is an option. Uh, to be fair, I've heard people say, yeah, you're right. We could just ignore. And, and, and if you want to run a course that doesn't have any of that, but, but why, why is that difficult to do or not the right decision in your mind? Well, actually, I mean, I, I'm in favor of a rollback for the professionals, but I support bifurcation, not just of the rules, but of equipment. So I would allow the 99%. We need to have some cap, but I'm not talking about rolling back anything from today's standards for the 99.8% of golfers that play golf every day and are are really the game. Uh, the rollback, though, um, you know, the USGA is facing an issue with both amateur, the notion of amateurism, where, you know, amateurs now are paid to play and can literally have million-dollar NIL deals. Um, so how do you separate or at what point you give the tell the elite player you are elite and no longer an amateur and you have different equipment that you need to play with like every other sport you know tom brady doesn't play you know well tom brady might have been a bad example of his footballs but for most, <laughs> most quarterbacks he found, he found other ways <laughs> yeah, yeah he, I mean, he created bifurcation within his own game is what he did yes yes well he's tom brady but you know every other sport the more advanced you get the more difficult the equipment is to master and you can make the argument in our game, you know, if you are Justin Thomas or Tiger Woods, we will literally make a golf ball for your swing. You know, we'll create clubs just for you. Uh, we'll give you the latest, greatest of everything on a weekly basis. Uh, you'll have the greatest technology and you already are the best players in the world. It's backwards. You know, you've got better access and better equipment than my wife who took the game up a year ago. It was, you know, it's just, you know, they are great. They can play, you know, and we talk about bifurcation and the USGA goes, you know, priapistic. They just go nuts. They they don't understand that we already bifurcate the rules to some degree anyway. And here's just an interesting question. You know, the, the small ball, the British ball, because everybody's like, oh, we got to play the same ball. Do y'all know what year it was that the small ball was finally outlawed for regular golf play? Regular Take a golf. wild guess. I mean, I'll say 95. Like 2003. So the small British ball was allowed till 1990. And the golf world didn't stop spinning on its. I mean, we played with two balls. And even in the Open Championship, the professionals dealt with different, you know, until they came up with the one ball rule to stop it. Downwind, they would use the American ball in the 60s. Into the wind, they'd use the small mm -hmm. ball, the British ball. And again, you know, these pros that act like, we can't adapt. How am I going to not play my Titleist? Well, you know, Jack Nicholas, Lee Trevino, Watson, Nagel, those guys, Palmer, you're good. You can figure it out. It, it's not going to, you know, and if you can't, tough. Yeah. So one of the 
Yeah, the adaption, the I can't adapt argument. Like I don't, I don't even entertain that. To me, like that's they, you change. You go play, you know, in, in Mexico at five thousand feet. Like no players can adapt. We have all the technology to do that quickly. So I completely with you on that. I think one of the arguments, and Chris, as being an owner of a golf course uh, with a membership, you know, you're going to have your thumb on why people play the game and what brings them in and out of the game more so than than definitely myself and probably Matt too, maybe. The argument also thrown out there is, you know, relative to bifurcation is, well, but people want to play what the pros play. And obviously you alluded to, well, it's already bifurcated itself, but do you... Do you ever hear, like, do you hear members saying, like, is that a viable argument at all? Or is that, in your experience, in terms of why your members play golf, does that issue never come up unless someone brings it up uh, inauthentically? Yeah, I don't, I don't see that. And I think it's, so, you know, when Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer were around, you, arguably the two greatest and most influential players, nobody played their golf clubs. I mean, it's sad to say, but First Flight and McGregor didn't dominate the club market. Um, even more so today, people realize I shouldn't be playing what Rory McIlroy plays, either the ball or the equipment. This The good news of fitting and getting fitted for your swing, I think people are, are more sophisticated now than, than ever. And they realize I should, you know, I need what's good for me. Um, so the desire to play the ball or what those guys play, I think that's maybe more on the apparel side than the equipment side. Um, you know, the... Uh, there was a time, you know, I think what people are realizing too, and it's, I think it's a bad thing. 70 years ago, if you and I played with Ben Hogan or Sam Snead or even Jack Nicholas to a degree, and he was the, as long as he hit it, we would, we could go play on the set. We could go up to Wingfoot and tee off from the same tee and play around a round of golf and, and have an incredible day. Now they're going to beat us by, 20 shots because they're going to be more precise. We hit a thin five iron and we're going to be in the right front bunker. They're going to knock it on the green 25 feet. But even off the tee, they're going to be 35 yards past us with Bellotta. They're going to, you know, blow it, you know, but we could play the same golf course. We can't do that today. If you and I went to play Roy McElroy at 7,500 yard Augusta National, other than it being Augusta, we'd quit because it's we couldn't finish. It would be we we would be hitting driver hybrid wedge all day long while they hit driver seven iron. It's a less relatable game now than it used to be. Um, so I don't I don't think those are I don't think those are issues. I think people love golf for two main reasons. One, there's something great about whacking a ball with a stick. There's something just primal innate about bat and ball games, which are fun. And two, it's social. Um, mm. if, you know, not to get too sappy, but if COVID taught us anything, we, you know, and I'll get Socrates and Plato mixed up. We're political animals, meaning social creatures. We need each other. We need some way to hang out, have fellowship with one another over some common thing. And what better thing than whacking a ball? And that's the appeal of the game more than anything else, I think. You, yeah, your idea of relatability there like hits my soul hard in terms of like, there's a walking contradiction that's like, oh, we wanna be relatable with the equipment, 
But then, like you pointed out, well, that's led to unrelatable. It's it's unrelatable the game they play now, the pros relative to us. Like I've played Wingfoot recently. You brought up several times and played it maybe sixty eight hundred. Um, I couldn't even imagine playing back at seventy five or whatever they played you. So I, I literally might have quit golf, like doing that right. And I think that's the misguided relatableness too. Like no, like to your point, the social aspect, the spending the time on the course together, the playing from the same tees, or at least close to the same tees, that's what should be relatable in the game. Not like, oh, I have the same driver, because as you mentioned too, that's not even the case, right? Like they right. play with specialized equipment and every player probably should. So yeah, that's, uh, yeah, very illuminating. A point I'll uh, also emphasize is I, I've played a lot of the courses where professional golf still goes and and many of our members at New Club aspire to play the places where the where the pros play. And uh, that, that American ideal, oh, we're going to play the backs. We got to play where they play. I've started to really uh, document and write down what our rounds are like, both from a scoring perspective. But the big one that's jumping off the page at me is the time. And there's not one of those courses that we are getting done. I'm talking about five hours. We're not, be, we're not getting done in five hours. We're closer. Sawgrass, we had a group that wanted to play the back. We were closer to six. And, and and you pay a lot of money to play sawgrass in six hours. I mean, it is. Um, I, I think what your comments, Chris, have really stirred in in my head here is there's a chain reaction to all these decisions, and and many of us are looking at the immediate ones right in front of us, bifurcating the game. Bad, but what are uh, what are the impacts down the road? And the biggest one you said off the bat was sustainability. And I know uh, sustainability of cost, sustainability of the environment, you guys are a leader in that and have been for a long, long time. I just imagine you and your superintendent, Mark Hoban, are, are somewhat mad scientists in a lab, or maybe you were when you guys were first coming out with the way you were going to do things. Can you, can you tell us why running a sustainable golf club is important to you? Well, I mean, I think to, to some degree – I think a lot of golfers and, and maybe all superintendents are a bit are, are environmentalists. I mean, I I certainly grew up. You, you leave something better than you found it. Uh, we're we're fortunate. We've got 200 acres of, you know, thank goodness it's a beautiful it's beautiful grass and trees and deer and not another cul-de-sac with homes on it. Um, and it's you know we take that responsibility very very seriously. Um, you know with. <laughs> So one, it's just kind of how Mark and I grew up. You take care of things. Two, we're going to get to a point. Golf, golf has never told its story well, and regulatory wise, it's not going to be a choice for golf in twenty, probably sooner than twenty years. Um, you're not going to be able to. I mean, you look at around the world. We lag the rest of the world in what is required. You look, California kind of leads the way environmentally. It's one of the few things they lead us in. Um, but, you know, the amount of pesticides, herbicides, you know, that we put on the golf course, it does have a negative impact. And we have to lessen our footprint. Uh, we already have a game that still suffers from negative, you know, ne negative reactions to people. And if we can get the word out that, hey, we, we almost all of us use recycled water that uh, captures water, filters it through the golf course before it hits our, our major rivers and creeks and streams, that's a benefit. Um, we use, you know, we, man, we make our own 
uh, compost tea using fish hydrolysate, mycorrhizae fungi, um, uh, worm poop from a worm farm we have on site. Uh, so, you know, our nitrogen impact, you know, a typical homeowner might use two pounds per year per acre. A golf course might be as high as four or five. We've been less than a pound. Um, you know, Mark's philosophy of getting the soil as healthy as possible so your actual input can be minimal uh, because it, it, the, the soil can be more efficient. You know, it's if you're really, really healthy, you don't need to eat as much to, to drive your body. If you're really in bad shape, you know, you're jacking yourself up with Snickers bars and Coke for that instant high, which is kind of how fertilizers have been used for poor soils. Um, and so Mark's approach, I think, has been the right one. And I think more and more people are moving towards it. Um, you know, we have apiaries. We're going to have honey this year on the, from, from our bees. Um, the notion that, you know, again, going back to sustainability, it's, it is a big, um, it's a big area of, you know, a big natural habitat that we've got to take care of. Um, and, you know, the expense, I mean, you look at anything petroleum based, you look at the cost of fertilizers, um, they're, they've gone through the roof. Um, it's just bad for the environment. It's expensive. Um, and people aren't going to let you, people in governments are going to say, you can't keep doing that. God, it's, it's such a leadership position you guys have taken, Chris. And I just commend you so much for doing it. Uh, cause I know there's opposition to it, right? Well, the, you know, people want, they think they want green, but part of our job is to let people know that, you know, our cars, we, we don't want green. We want textures. So we want textures and different colors, and it can play good and fun without looking like a video game. And when people play, like, you know, when people play the course and actually experience it, and they see all the, the red-tailed hawks and the deer and all the wildlife mingling in with all the different native grasses and looks we have, they realize, well, this is, you know, hey, it's not like, it's different, but I liked it. It was really neat. It was it was a more natural setting. More, uh, gosh, was it uh, Olmstead in New York? You know, it's it's not flowers. It's not a. I, I keep telling my guys, I don't want it to look like a, the entrance to a post apartment with the perfectly symmetrical, you know, annual flowers at the entrance. Let's make it look like some, you know, a natural, you know, Central Park which is actually just kind of a pretty beautiful woodsy area where you walk around, you pop out and see something else beautiful, and you go around another curve, and you're not sure what you're going to get. And then you're like, wow, what a natural, beautiful setting. Was Mark on board from the beginning with this thing, or was that something you all negotiated and you put the mission in place? Like, How did that relationship play out um, when, when Mark first came on board? Yeah, so when we were interviewing him, it was right at the time we were discussing, you know, I was talking with Mike Riley, the architect, and it was right at the time we were talking about this vision, and Mark was all on board. I mean, he was ahead of the game, so far ahead of everybody else. So, frankly, when I was trying to decide the team, Mark was the, was a no, was a no-brainer, and then Mike as well. So the three of us really shared that vision of what we wanted the course to be. You, you made us a, uh, a small analogy to our own health and, and the health of the golf course. And Chris, I read an article maybe a decade old now um, about some changes you made in, in your uh, health decisions and 
eating habits and exercise and how it really, what resonated with me about that interview was how it's a perfect analogy for the golf course and taking care of a golf course and taking care of our bodies. Can you elaborate on that a little bit in your own personal journey with that? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've regressed a little bit, but uh, at, at one point I was, I was over 250 pounds. I'm only about 5'10", so it was not a good look. Um, but I also wasn't healthy. I was in my 30s. Uh, my doctor finally told me, he said, congratulations, you're diabetic. And it was, frankly, it was embarrassing. I couldn't believe that that's what had happened. Um, and I decided that, you know, I didn't want to take metformin and all these other drugs for the rest of my life. And, and I realized I had to take, I had to take better care of myself. And, you know, at one point I ended up dropping about 70 pounds, getting a little bit of it back, but, you know, understand, you know, what you put in your body is crucial. Uh, you know, to, for me to be able to lose weight, I had exercised and I'd been a decent athlete. But the only way I lost weight was when I was really aware of what I put into my body. And by getting, you know, cutting out sweet tea and fast food alone was huge for me because that's how I grew up. And there was an instant I felt better. I mean, just everything felt so much better, became so much easier. And, you know, I think it's the same with Mark looking at the soil as much or more than the leaves. Uh, you take care of the soil, you create the right conditions underground, and things will thrive and do well. And if we take care of ourselves by what we put in our bodies, our bodies will thrive. Well, one of the reasons our golf society selected this here, the the pollinators as our, our versions of our logo, is uh, it's a barometer, much like the soil. It's a barometer for how things are going, how you're doing. And, and when when you see pollinators at a golf course, I know there it can be irritating if you're standing over a three-footer to win the hole, but trust us, that is a great sign for the health of that ecosystem. And and I, I, I know that you know the honey, I read about that recently in the year. I got real excited about you guys doing that. We, we have a goal to have apiaries at some of the courses we've partnered with. And um, I just, I hope more courses are listening. Are you guys... Oh, I, I, I might have you yeah. and Mark back if you'd do it, Chris. I know we're running out of time here, but I would love to have a whole episode with you and Mark to really dive into the lessons you guys have learned. Because we have a lot of golf industry professionals that listen to this show. And um, I just wish there was more folks doing what you guys are doing out there. Mm -hmm. No, it would be, Mark would love it. So we'd, we'd love to come back. And, you know, I can tell you about how, uh, how one gets fired from a uh, volunteer position at the USGA. <laughs> yeah, we, we will. Uh, I, I did want to, I want to squeeze in a question on your, your work here with um, Georgia State Golf Association. They've been, as soon as, as we announced as, as a new club that we were coming to the state of Georgia, folks from the GSGA were excited and, and really supportive of what we've been trying to do with our tiny membership. And, um, and, and it's why one reason I think with, your guys focus on sustainability and your focus on uh, these initiatives in the game. Um, I know that G GSGA cares a lot about that. And, and you, sir, were the recipient of the Bill Todd Award this year in 2023, which is, uh, if you don't know, it's the highest honor for a, a volunteer of the Georgia State Golf Association. And 
our, our dollars from this charity classic at, at Rivermont on September 19th are going to be going towards Youth on Course and supporting that program, which is subsidized by the Georgia State Golf Association and their foundation. But I wanted to ask you, you've spent a lot of years in and around the Georgia golf scene. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the impact that the Georgia State Golf Association has on golf in Georgia, on especially the foundation, um, what it means to you, why it's important? Sure. I mean, the, um, gosh, where, you know, where to start. They, they, so I really got involved in the early two thousands. Um, you know, from a business perspective, the, from 2000 to 2007, the industry was really facing issues with water usage. And it was the Georgia state golf association in conjunction with the superintendents and the owners association that put together a group that came up with best practices. I believe at the time we were down there talking with governor Purdue Marcus Soda at Atlanta Country Club really took the lead, you know, Workman. Had that group not been put together, we were the, I will say, we were the first industry in the state of Georgia to approach the state with a best management practice manual. Um, so we were extremely proactive, making our case as to why golf should be treated a certain way with regard to water rights. And when the droughts hit, we, we had fairly favorable treatment because they knew we were good stewards of the water and had a plan in place. The superintendents actually got over 95% of their, their courses um, through the BMP practices. So that was, that was huge and led by the GSGA. Um, you know, I've, I've been fortunate. I've, I've served on their scholarship committee, the Yates Scholarship and Moncrief Scholarship programs for over 20 years now. So raising money for the, the kids of GSGA clubs and, you know, even the parents that are going back as uh, non-traditional students. Um, I know that we've been able to send kids to school that otherwise, you know, not so much the, the upcoming kids or the in, in, uh, in college kids, but the non-traditional, the, the guy that works in your turf care or the lady that's in your laundry that wants to go back and become a nurse, that foundation was life-changing for many of them because they couldn't afford to do it without that help. And that's the type of thing that the GSGA dollars, that's just one small thing they do, which has been phenomenal. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I knew you'd have a personal years and years of experience with that. So for those listening, an opportunity to support it is to come out and play at Rivermont on Tuesday, the 19th. Um, along with myself, I'll be there. New club members will be there. And, uh, do it for the kids. Tell your boss if you say, oh, it's Tuesday, boss doesn't want you to call off. Tell him, does he hate the kids? Does he not want to help the kids? Come on, let's get out and play some golf. Um, and if you can't make it, there's a donation link as well. It goes directly to um, Georgia State Golf Association and Youth on Course. Chris, uh, I, I hope you're around that day. I'd love to meet you in person. I'll be there, yes. I, I really have enjoyed this conversation. I am very sincere about having you and Mark on again together because I can tell it's been an amazing partnership and um, I just want to thank you for being here with us it, it really is an inspiration I think for for more of us to take an active role in the game and and try to do some of the things that you've been able to to achieve at Rivermont and elsewhere uh, really a treat being with you today oh, it was my pleasure I, I can't thank you enough I look forward to seeing everybody on uh September 19th at the golf course. And uh, thank y'all. It's been a wonderful morning. Cheers.
tell you what, Professor, I am just happy and reassured that there are people in this game like Chris Cupid. I'm inspired. Uh, I have to run to a faculty meeting pretty much 20 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> and so I was like, I'm just going to sit here and miss half this faculty meeting. I'm fine with that. And now it just makes me want to leave the office, go straight to the golf course and just preach what he, some of the stuff he was passing on. Not even play golf, just be like, you got to go talk to Chris. Got to go talk to Chris. You know, general manager, supers everywhere. Like, go to Rivermont and see what they're doing. Yeah, I, I, there was a theme in everything he said for me personally, and it's that the easy way is not the right way. Um, to, to eat healthier, to take care of yourself. It's not easy. It's just the right thing to do. You're going to feel better to, uh, hit the ball farther, to play better, to play better golf. It's not always just the, the equipment and, and, you know, the technology that's going to be the quick fix. It's also put in some time and practice and, and, you know, work on your game, work on your mental game. It's the easy route is not always great. And especially when it came to our conversation with him around sustainability, um, I, we will get him and Mark Hoban, his superintendent at Rivermont on this show together, because I want to hear that the decisions they've made over the years, there was opposition. The industry wasn't making the decisions these two were making and they have a better golf course because of it. They have controlled the cost of a membership because of it. Um, they, they do things or, organically for the environment, which is not the easy route, but it, it appears to be the right route for more golf courses. And I, and I just think their leadership is, is going to be celebrated. So I'm, I'm interested to dive into the whole environmentalism and, and sustainability efforts of, of what they do. But, but that was my takeaway is, uh, these guys are doing the right thing, not the easy thing. And, and that is really, uh, should be celebrated. Yeah. Very well, well said. My takeaway is one, he was refreshing, just such a refreshing voice. And two, I should just shut up and he should take the both of our hosting um, <laughs> things. No, but uh, the, the serious point there is like, it's fun getting to meet people and, and learn from them. And he's someone the golf community should be looking toward. So anybody that listens here that runs a golf course, a superintendent that works on a golf course, general manager that runs a club, members that have leadership positions, go talk to Chris. Um, don't listen to us, you know, rant and rave. Just give him a call, give him an email, go learn from him because what they're doing there uh, and what he's doing and that mission sticking to it. And like you said, not taking the easy way out. Um, more people should be doing that. And he's someone everyone should go learn from. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a selfless approach to his decision-making it seemed. And he, he has a, a, a wealth, it craves knowledge of all the, the, in, uh, stakeholders, right. When he was mm -hmm. talking about Georgia state golf association, all the work he's done there. Yeah. It, it definitely is, is a great takeaway. Look to him. Um, and come join us at Rivermont. My last, uh, uh, appeal to everybody is that you can play with new club and Rivermont on September 19th. Uh, we get started around 10 AM. We're going to have some tea gifts from our friends at Titleist. We're going to have tea gifts from uh, new club. We're going to have, uh, some other things from GSGA and it's all going to support uh, the youth on course, um, for their efforts in the state of Georgia, getting kids access to this great game. I think that's, that was uh, a reminder to me of everything Chris shared is how great this game is. And we do need more people in the game. We do. And and Youth on Course is a phenomenal way of getting people out in the golf course, learn those life, life lessons that stick with you for a, a lifetime. We wouldn't be talking about this game on a weekly podcast if it were for you know, somebody introducing us to the game. And we want to introduce more people to it. So uh, join us at at uh, Rivermont on September 19th. And uh, the link is newclub.golf slash charity classic. And a big thank you to uh, 
our sponsor of the pod today, True Temper, um, for all their efforts and uh, and everything they do. Number one shaft in the game of golf. Professor, thanks again, man. Apologize to the faculty for us keeping you long today, but tell them it was worthwhile. Definitely worthwhile. I'm looking forward to seeing you at Rivermont. See you out there.